0: Chapter thirteen part one of Sons and Lovers by d. h. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Baxter Dawes. Soon after Paul had been to the theatre with Clara he was drinking in the punch bowl with some friends of his when Dawes came in. Clara's husband was growing stout. His eyelids were getting slack over his brown eyes. He was losing his healthy firmness of flesh. He was very evidently on the downward track. Having quarrelled with his sister, he had gone into cheap lodgings. His mistress had left him for a man who would marry her. He had been in prison one night for fighting when he was drunk, and there was a shady betting episode in which he was concerned. Paul and he were confirmed enemies, and yet there was between them that peculiar feeling of intimacy, as if they were secretly near to each other, which sometimes exists between two people, although they never speak to one another. Paul often thought of Baxter Dawes, often wanted to get at him and be friends with him. He knew that Dawes often thought about him, and that the man was drawn to him by some bond or other, and yet the two never looked at each other, save in hostility. Since he was a superior employee at Jordan's, it was the thing for Paul to offer Dawes a drink. what you have?' he asked of him. Now you bleed bleeder like you, replied the man. Paul turned away with a slight disdainful movement of the shoulders, very irritating. The aristocracy, he continued, is really a military institution. Take Germany now. She's got thousands of aristocrats whose only means of existence is the army. They're deadly poor, and life's deadly slow. So they hope for a war. They look for war as a chance of getting on. Till there's a war, they are idle good-for-nothings. When there's a war, they're leaders and commanders. There you are, then. They want war. He was not a favourite debater in the public house, being too quick and overbearing. He irritated the older men by his assertive manner and his cocksureness. They listened in silence, and were not sorry when he finished. Dawes interrupted the young man's flow of eloquence by asking in a loud sneer, Did you learn all that at theatre the other the night? Paul looked at him. Their eyes met. Then he knew Dawes had seen him coming out of the theatre with Clara. Why, what about the theatre? asked one of Paul's associates, glad to get a dig at the young fellow and sniffing something tasty. Oh, him in a bob-tailed evening suit on the lardy-dar, sneered Dawes, jerking his head contemptuously at Paul. That's coming it strong, said the mutual friend. Tart and all. Tart be God, said Dawes. Go on, let's have it, cried the mutual friend. "'You've got it,' said Dawes, "'and I reckon Morelli had it and all.' "'Well, I'll be jiggered,' said the mutual friend. "'And was it a proper tart?' "'Tart! God blimey! Yes!' "'How would you know?' "'Oh,' said Dawes, "'I reckon he spent night." There was a good deal of laughter at Paul's expense. "'But who was she? Do you know her?' asked the mutual friend. "'I should shay-show,' said Dawes. This brought another burst of laughter. "'Then spit it out,' said the mutual friend. Dawes shook his head and took a gulp of beer. "'It's a wonder he ain't lit on himself,' he said. "'You'll be bragging of it in a bit.' "'Come on, Paul,' said the friend. "'It's no good. "'You might as well own up.' "'Own up what? Like "'I am to take a friend to the theatre. "'Oh, well, if it was all right, tell us who she was, lad,' said the friend. "'She was all right,' said Dawes. Paul was furious. Dawes wiped his golden moustache with his fingers, sneering. "'Strike me!' "'One of that sort,' said the mutual friend. "'Paul, boy, I'm surprised at you. "'And do you know her, Baxter?' "'Just a bit, like,' he winked at the other men. "'Oh, well,' said Paul, "'I'll be going.' The mutual friend laid a detaining hand on his shoulder. "'Nay,' he said, "'you don't get off as easy as that, my lad. "'We've got to have a full account of this business.' "'Then get it from Dawes,' he said. "'You shouldn't funk your own deeds, man,' remonstrated the friend. Then Dawes made a remark which caused Paul to throw half a glass of beer in his face. "'Oh, Mr. Morell!' cried the barmaid, and she rang the bell for the chucker out. Dawes spat and rushed for the young man. At that minute a brawny fellow with his shirt-sleeves rolled up and his trousers tight over his haunches intervened. "'Now then,' he said, pushing his chest in front of Dawes. "'Come out!' cried Dawes. Paul was leaning, white and quivering, against the brass rail of the bar. He hated Dawes, wished something could exterminate him at that minute. And at the same time, seeing the wet hair on the man's forehead, he thought he looked pathetic. He did not move. "'Come out, you,' said Dawes. "'That's enough, Dawes,' cried the barmaid. "'Come on,' said the chucker out, with kindly insistence. "'You'd better be getting on.' And by making Dawes edge away from his own close proximity, he worked him to the door. "'That's the little sod has started it.' cried Dawes, half-cowed, pointing to Paul Morel. "'Why, what a story, Mr. Dawes!' said the barmaid. "'You know it was you all the time.' Still the chucker-out kept thrusting his chest forward at him. Still he kept edging back, until he was in the doorway, and on the steps outside. Then he turned round. "'All right,' he said, nodding straight at his rival. Paul had a curious sensation of pity, almost of affection, mingled with violent hate for the man. The coloured door swung to. There was silence in the bar. "'Serve him jolly well right,' said the barmaid. "'But it's a nasty thing to get a glass of beer in your eyes,' said the mutual friend. "'I tell you, I was glad he did,' said the barmaid. "'Will you have another, Mr. Morel?' She held up Paul's glass questioningly. He nodded. "'He's a man as doesn't care for anything, his Baxter doors,' said one. Pooh, Is he?' said the barmaid. "'He's a loud-mouthed one, he is, and they're never much good.' "'Give me a pleasant-spoken chap, if you want a devil.' "'Well, Paul, my lad,' said the friend, "'you'll have to take care of yourself now for a while. "'You won't have to give him a chance over you, that's all,' said the barmaid. "'Can you box?' asked the friend. "'Not a bit,' he answered, still very white. "'I might give you a turn or two, said the friend. "'Thanks. I haven't time.' And presently he took his departure. "'Go along with Mr. Jenkinson,' whispered the barmaid, "'tipping Mr. Jenkinson the wink.' The man nodded, took his hat, said, "'Good-night, all,' very heartily, and followed Paul, calling, "'Half a minute, old man. You and me's going the same road, I believe.' "'Mr. Morel doesn't like it,' said the barmaid. "'You'll see. We shan't have him in much more. I'm sorry. He's good company, and Baxter Dawes wants locking up. That's what he wants. Paul would have died rather than his mother should get to know of this affair. He suffered tortures of humiliation and self-consciousness. There was now a good deal of his life of which necessarily he could not speak to his mother. He had a life apart from her, his sexual life. The rest she still kept. But he felt he had to conceal something from her, and it irked him. There was a certain silence between them, and he felt he had in that silence to defend himself against her. He felt condemned by her. Then, sometimes he hated her and pulled at her bondage. His life wanted to free itself of her. It was like a circle, where life turned back on itself, and got no farther. She bore him, loved him, kept him, and his love turned back into her, so that he could not be free to go forward with his own life, really love another woman. At this period, unknowingly, he resisted his mother's influence. He did not tell her things. There was a distance between them. Clara was happy, almost sure of him. She felt she had at last got him for herself, and then again came the uncertainty. He told her jestingly of the affair with her husband. Her colour came up, her grey eyes flashed. "'That's him to a T,' she cried, like a navvy. "'He's not fit for mixing with decent folk.' "'Yet you married him,' he said. It made her furious that he reminded her. "'I did,' she cried, "'but how was I to know?' "'I think he might have been rather nice,' he said." "'You think I made him what he is?' she exclaimed. "'Oh, no. He made himself. But there's something about him.' Clara looked at her lover closely. There was something in him she hated, a sort of detached criticism of herself, a coldness which made her woman's soul harden against him. "'And what are you going to do?' she asked. "'How?' "'About Baxter.' "'There's nothing to do, is there?' he replied. "'You can fight him if you have to, I suppose,' she said no i haven't the least sense of the fist it's funny with most men there's the instinct to clench the fist and hit it's not so with me i should want a knife or a pistol or something to fight with then you'd better carry something she said nay he laughed i'm not daggeroso but he'll do something to you you don't know him all right he said we'll see and you'll let him perhaps if i can't help it and if he kills you she said "'I should be sorry, for his sake and mine.' Clara was silent for a moment. "'You do make me angry,' she exclaimed. "'There's nothing afresh,' he laughed. "'But why are you so silly? "'You don't know him. "'And don't want.' "'Yes, but you're not going to let a man do as he likes with you.' "'What must I do?' he replied, laughing. "'I should carry a revolver,' she said. "'I'm sure he's dangerous.' "'I might blow my fingers off,' he said. "'No. "'But won't you?' she pleaded no not anything no and you'll leave him to yes you are a fool fact she set her teeth with anger i could shake you she cried trembling with passion why let a man like him do as he likes with you you can go back to him if he triumphs he said do you want me to hate you she asked well i only tell you he said and you say you love me she exclaimed "'low and indignant. "'Ought I to slay him to please you,' he said, "'but if I did, see what a hold he'd have over me.' "'Do you think I'm a fool?' she exclaimed. "'Not at all. "'But you don't understand me, my dear.' There was a pause between them. "'But you ought not to expose yourself,' she pleaded. He shrugged his shoulders. "'The man in righteousness arrayed "'the pure and blameless liver "'needs not the keen Toledo blade. "'Nor venom-freighted quiver,' he quoted. She looked at him searchingly. "'I wish I could understand you,' she said. "'There's simply nothing to understand,' he laughed. She bowed her head, brooding. He did not see Dawes for several days. Then, one morning, as he ran upstairs from the spiral room, he almost collided with the burly metal-worker. "'What the?' cried the smith. "'Sorry,' said Paul, and passed on. "'Sorry!' sneered Dawes paul whistled lightly put me among the girls i'll stop your whistle my jockey he said the other took no notice you're going to answer for that job of the other night paul went to his desk in his corner and turned over the leaves of the ledger go and tell fanny i want order o nine seven quick he said to his boy dawes stood in the doorway tall and threatening looking at the top of the young man's head six and five's eleven and seven's one and six paul added aloud "'And you here do you?' said Dawes. Five and ninepence,' he wrote a figure. "'What's that?' he said. "'I'm going to show you what it is,' said the smith. The other went on, adding the figures aloud. "'You crawling little—you daresn't face me proper.' Paul quickly snatched the heavy ruler. Dawes started. The young man ruled some lines in his ledger. The elder man was infuriated. "'But wait till I light on you, no matter where it is.' "'I'll settle your hash for a bit, you little swine.' "'All right,' said Paul. "'At that the smith started heavily from the doorway. "'Just then a whistle piped shrilly. "'Paul went to the speaking-tube. "'Yes,' he said, and listened. "'Er, uh, yes,' he listened. "'Then he laughed. "'I'll come down directly. "'I've got a visitor just now.' "'Dawes knew from his tone that he had been speaking to Clara. "'He stepped forward. "'You little devil,' he said. "'I'll visit her you, inside of two minutes. "'Think I'm going to have you whippety-snapping round?' "'The other clerks in the warehouse looked up. "'Paul's office-boy appeared, holding some white article. "'Fanny says you could have had it last night if you would let her know,' he said. "'All right,' answered Paul, looking at the stocking. "'Get it off.' "'Dawes stood, frustrated, helpless with rage. Morel turned round. "'Excuse me a minute,' he said to Dawes, and he would have run downstairs.' "'By God, I'll stop your gallop!' shouted the smith, seizing him by the arm. He turned quickly. "'Hey! hey!' cried the office-boy, alarmed. Thomas Jordan started out of his little glass office, and came running down the room. "'What's the matter? what's the matter?' he said, in his old man's sharp voice. "'I'm just going to settle this little—that's all,' said Dawes, desperately. "'What do you mean?' snapped Thomas Jordan. "'What I say?' said Dawes but he hung fire. Morel was leaning against the counter, ashamed, half-grinning. "'What's it all about?' snapped Thomas Jordan. "'Couldn't say,' said Bull, shaking his head and shrugging his shoulders. "'Couldn't you? Couldn't you?' cried Dawes, thrusting forward his handsome, furious face and squaring his fist. "'Have you finished?' cried the old man, strutting. "'Get off about your business, and don't come here tipsy in the morning!' Dawes turned his big frame slowly upon him tipsy he said who's tipsy i'm no more tipsy than you are we've heard that song before snapped the old man now you get off and don't be long about it come in here with your rowdying." the smith looked down contemptuously on his employer his hands large and grimy and yet well shaped for his labour worked restlessly paul remembered they were the hands of clara's husband and a flash of hate went through him get out before you're turned out snapped thomas jordan why you turn me out said dawes beginning to sneer mr jordan started marched up to the smith waving him off thrusting his stout little figure at the man saying get off my premises get off he seized and twitched dawes arm come off said the smith and with a jerk of his elbow he sent the little manufacturer staggering backwards before anyone could help him, Thomas Jordan had collided with the flimsy spring-door. It had given way, and let him crash down the half-dozen steps into Fanny's room. There was a second of amazement, then men and girls were running. Dawes stood for a moment, looking bitterly on the scene, then he took his departure. Thomas Jordan was shaken and bruised, but not otherwise hurt. He was, however, beside himself with rage. He dismissed Dawes from his employment— and summoned him for assault. At the trial, Paul Morel had to give evidence. Asked how the trouble began, he said, Dawes took occasion to insult Mrs. Dawes and me, because I accompanied her to the theatre one evening. Then I threw some beer at him, and he wanted his revenge. Cherchez la femme, smiled the magistrate. The case was dismissed, after the magistrate had told Dawes he thought him a skunk. You gave the case away, snapped Mr. Jordan to Paul. "'I don't think I did,' replied the latter. "'Besides, you didn't really want a conviction, did you?' "'What do you think I took the case up for?' "'Well,' said Paul, "'I'm sorry if I said the wrong thing.' Clara was also very angry. "'Why need my name have been dragged in?' she said. "'Better speak it openly than leave it to be whispered.' "'There was no need for anything at all,' she declared. "'We are none the poorer,' he said, indifferently. "'You may not be,' she said. "'And you?' he asked. I need never have been mentioned. I'm sorry,' he said, but he did not sound sorry. He told himself easily, "'She will come round,' and she did. He told his mother about the fall of Mr. Jordan and the trial of Dawes. Mrs. Morel watched him closely. "'And what do you think of it all?' she asked him. "'I think he's a fool,' he said, but he was very uncomfortable nevertheless. "'Have you ever considered where it will end?' his mother said. "'No,' he answered. "'Things work out of themselves.' "'They do, in a way one doesn't like, as a rule,' said his mother. "'And then one has to put up with them,' he said. "'You'll find you're not as good at putting up as you imagine,' she said. "'He went on working rapidly at his design. "'Do you ever ask her opinion?' she said at length. "'What of? Of you, and the whole thing. "'I don't care what her opinion of me is. "'She's fearfully in love with me, but it's not very deep. "'But quite as deep as your feeling for her.' He looked up at his mother curiously. "'Yes,' he said. "'You know, mother, I think there must be something the matter with me, that I can't love. When she's there, as a rule, I do love her. Sometimes, when I see her just as the woman, I love her, mother. But then, when she talks and criticises, I often don't listen to her. Yet she's as much sense as Miriam. Perhaps, and I love her better than Miriam. But why don't they hold me?' The last question was almost a lamentation. His mother turned away her face, sat looking across the room, very quiet, grave, with something of renunciation. "'But you wouldn't want to marry Clara,' she said. "'No. At first perhaps I would. But why, why don't I want to marry her or anybody? I feel sometimes as if I wronged my women, mother. How wronged them, my son? I don't know.' He went on painting rather despairingly. He had touched the quick of the trouble and as for wanting to marry said his mother there's plenty of time yet but no mother i even love clara and i did miriam but to give myself to them in marriage i couldn't i couldn't belong to them they seem to want me and i can't ever give it them you haven't met the right woman and i never shall meet the right woman while you live he said she was very quiet now she began to feel again tired as if she were done we'll see my son she answered the feeling that things were going in a circle made him mad. Clara was, indeed, passionately in love with him, and he with her, as far as passion went. In the daytime he forgot her a good deal. She was working in the same building, but he was not aware of it. He was busy, and her existence was of no matter to him. But all the time she was in her spiral room she had a sense that he was upstairs, a physical sense of his person in the same building. Every second she expected him to come through the door, and when he came it was a shock to her, but he was often short and offhand with her. He gave her his directions in an official manner, keeping her at bay. With what wits she had left she listened to him. She dared not misunderstand or fail to remember, but it was a cruelty to her. She wanted to touch his chest. She knew exactly how his breast was shapen under the waistcoat, and she wanted to touch it. It maddened her to hear his mechanical voice giving orders about the work. She wanted to break through the sham of it, smash the trivial coating of business which covered him with hardness, get at the man again. But she was afraid, and before she could feel one touch of his warmth, he was gone, and she ached again. He knew that she was dreary every evening she did not see him, so he gave her a good deal of his time. The days were often a misery to her, but the evenings and the nights were usually a bliss to them both. Then they were silent. For hours they sat together, or walked together in the dark, and talked only a few, almost meaningless words. But he had her hand in his, and her bosom left its warmth in his chest, making him feel whole. One evening they were walking down by the canal, and something was troubling him. She knew she had not got him, all the time he whistled softly and persistently to himself. She listened, feeling she could learn more from his whistling than from his speech. It was a sad, dissatisfied tune, a tune that made her feel he would not stay with her. She walked on in silence. When they came to the swing bridge, he sat down on the great pole, looking at the stars in the water. He was a long way from her. She had been thinking. Will you always stay at Jordan's? she asked. No he answered without reflecting no i shall leave nottingham and go abroad soon go abroad what for i don't know i feel restless but what shall you do i shall have to get some steady designing work and some sort of sale for my pictures first he said i am gradually making my way i know i am and when do you think you'll go i don't know i shall hardly go for long while there's my mother you couldn't leave her not for long she looked at the stars in the black water they lay very white and staring it was an agony to know he would leave her but it was almost an agony to have him near her and if you made a nice lot of money what would you do she asked go somewhere in a pretty house near london with my mother i see there was a long pause i could still come and see you he said i don't know don't ask me what i should do i don't know there was a silence the stars shuddered and broke upon the water. There came a breath of wind. He went suddenly to her, and put his hand on her shoulder. "'Don't ask me anything about the future,' he said miserably. "'I don't know anything. Be with me now, will you, no matter what it is.' And she took him in her arms. After all, she was a married woman, and she had no right even to what he gave her. He needed her badly. She had him in her arms, and he was miserable. With her warmth she folded him over, consoled him, loved him. She would let the moment stand for itself. After a moment he lifted his head as if he wanted to speak. "'Clara,' he said, struggling. She caught him passionately to her, pressed his head down on her breast with her hand. She could not bear the suffering in his voice. She was afraid in her soul. He might have anything of her, anything, but she did not want to know— she felt she could not bear it. She wanted him to be soothed upon her, soothed. She stood clasping him and caressing him, and he was something unknown to her, something almost uncanny. She wanted to soothe him into forgetfulness. And soon the struggle went down in his soul, and he forgot. But then Clara was not there for him, only a woman, warm, something he loved and almost worshipped, there in the dark. But it was not Clara, and she submitted to him. The naked hunger and inevitability of his loving her, something strong and blind and ruthless in its primitiveness, made the hour almost terrible to her. She knew how stark and alone he was, and she felt it was great that he came to her, and she took him simply because his need was bigger, either than her or him, and her soul was still within her. She did this for him in his need, even if he left her, for she loved him, all the while the peewits were screaming in the field when he came to he wondered what was near his eyes curving and strong with life in the dark and what voice it was speaking then he realised it was the grass and the peewit was calling the warmth was clara's breathing heaving he lifted his head and looked into her eyes they were dark and shining and strange life wild at the source staring into his life stranger to him yet meeting him and he put his face down on her throat, afraid. What was she? A strong, strange, wild life that breathed with his in the darkness through this hour. It was all so much bigger than themselves that he was hushed. They had met, and included in their meeting, the thrust of the manifold grass-stems, the cry of the peewit, the wheel of the stars. When they stood up they saw other lovers stealing down the opposite hedge. It seemed natural, they were there the night contained them and after such an evening they both were very still having known the immensity of passion they felt small half afraid childish and wondering like adam and eve when they lost their innocence and realized the magnificence of the power which drove them out of paradise and across the great night and the great day of humanity it was for each of them an initiation and a satisfaction to know their own nothingness, to know the tremendous living flood which carried them always, gave them rest within themselves. If so great a magnificent power could overwhelm them, identify them altogether with itself, so that they knew they were only grains in the tremendous heave that lifted every grass-blade, its little height, and every tree, and living thing, then why fret about themselves? They could let themselves be carried by life, and they felt a sort of peace, each in the other. There was a verification which they had had together. Nothing could nullify it. Nothing could take it away. It was almost their belief in life. But Clara was not satisfied. Something great was there, she knew. Something great enveloped her, but it did not keep her. In the morning it was not the same. They had known, but she could not keep the moment. She wanted it again. She wanted something permanent she had not realised fully she thought it was he whom she wanted he was not safe to her this that had been between them might never be again he might leave her she had not got him she was not satisfied she had been there but she had not gripped the-the something she knew not what which she was mad to have in the morning he had considerable peace and was happy in himself it seemed almost as if he had known the baptism of fire in passion and it left him at rest. But it was not Clara. It was something that happened because of her, but it was not her. They were scarcely any nearer each other. It was as if they had been blind agents of a great force. When she saw him that day at the factory, her heart melted like a drop of fire. It was his body, his brows. The drop of fire grew more intense in her breast. She must hold him. But he, very quiet, very subdued this morning, went on giving his instructions. She followed him into the dark, ugly basement, and lifted her arms to him. He kissed her, and the intensity of passion began to burn him again. Somebody was at the door. He ran upstairs. She returned to her room, moving as if in a trance. After that the fire slowly went down. He felt more and more that his experience had been impersonal, and not Clara. He loved her. There was a big tenderness, as after a strong emotion they had known together, but it was not she who could keep his soul steady. He had wanted her to be something she could not be. And she was mad with desire of him. She could not see him without touching him. In the factory, as he talked to her about spiral hose, she ran her hands secretly along his side. She followed him out into the basement for a quick kiss. Her eyes, always mute and yearning, full of unrestrained passion— she kept fixed on his. He was afraid of her, lest she should too flagrantly give herself away before the other girls. She invariably waited for him at dinner-time, for him to embrace her, before she went. He felt as if she were helpless, almost a burden to him, and it irritated him. "'But what do you always want to be kissing and embracing for?' he said. "'Surely there's a time for everything.' She looked up at him, and the hate came into her eyes. "'Do I always want to be kissing you?' she said always, even if I come to ask you about the work. I don't want anything to do with love when I'm at work. Work's work. And what is love, she asked, Has it have to have special hours? Yes, out of work hours. And you'll regulate it according to Mr. Jordan's closing time? Yes, and according to the freedom from business of any sort. It is only to exist in spare time? That's all, and not always then. Not the kissing sort of love. And that's all you think of it? it's quite enough. I'm glad you think so. And she was cold to him for some time. She hated him. And while she was cold and contemptuous, he was uneasy till she had forgiven him again. But when they started afresh, they were not any nearer. He kept her because he never satisfied her. In the spring they went together to the seaside. They had rooms at a little cottage near Thedlethorpe, and lived as man and wife. Mrs. Radford sometimes went with them, it was known in Nottingham that Paul Morel and Mrs. Dawes were going together, but as nothing was very obvious, and Clara was always a solitary person, and he seemed so simple and innocent, it did not make much difference. He loved the Lincolnshire coast, and she loved the sea. In the early morning they often went out together to bathe, the grey of the dawn, the far desolate reaches of the Fenland smitten with winter, the sea-meadows, rank with herbage, were stark enough to rejoice his soul. As they stepped onto the high road from their plank bridge, and looked round at the endless monotony of levels, the land a little darker than the sky, the sea sounding small beyond the sandhills, his heart filled strong with the sweeping relentlessness of life. She loved him then. He was solitary and strong, and his eyes had a beautiful light. They shuddered with cold, then he raced her down the road to the green turf bridge. She could run well. Her colour soon came. Her throat was bare, her eyes shone. He loved her for being so luxuriously heavy, and yet so quick. Himself was light, she went with a beautiful rush. They grew warm, and walked hand in hand. A flush came into the sky, the wan moon, halfway down the west, sank into insignificance. On the shadowy land things began to take life, plants with great leaves became distinct, they came through a pass in the big, cold sand-hills onto the beach. The long waste of Foreshore lay moaning under the dawn, and the sea, the ocean, was a flat, dark strip with a white edge. Over the gloomy sea the sky grew red. Quickly the fire spread among the clouds and scattered them. Crimson burned to orange, orange to dull gold, and in a golden glitter the sun came up, dribbling firely over the waves in little splashes, "'as if someone had gone along "'and the light had spilled from her pail as she walked. "'The breakers ran down the shore in long, hoarse strokes. "'Tiny seagulls, like specks of spray, "'wheeled above the line of surf. "'Their crying seemed larger than they. "'Far away the coast reached out and melted into the morning. "'The tussocky sandhills seemed to sink to a level with the beach. "'Mablethorpe was tiny on their right.' They had alone the space of all this level shore, the sea, and the upcoming sun, the faint noise of the waters, the sharp crying of the gulls. They had a warm hollow in the sandhills where the wind did not come. He stood looking out to sea. It's very fine, he said. Now, don't get sentimental, she said. It irritated her to see him standing, gazing at the sea, like a solitary and poetic person. He laughed. She quickly undressed. "'There are some fine waves this morning,' she said triumphantly. She was a better swimmer than he. He stood idly watching her. "'Aren't you coming?' she said. "'In a minute,' he answered. She was white and velvet-skinned, with heavy shoulders. A little wind coming from the sea blew across her body and ruffled her hair. The morning was of a lovely, limpid gold colour. Veils of shadow seemed to be drifting away on the north and the south. Clara stood shrinking slightly from the touch of the wind, twisting her hair. The seagrass rose behind the white-stripped woman. She glanced at the sea, then looked at him. He was watching her with dark eyes, which she loved and could not understand. She hugged her breasts between her arms, cringing, laughing. "'Oh, it'll be so cold,' she said. He bent forward and kissed her, held her suddenly close, and kissed her again. She stood waiting.' HE LOOKED INTO HER EYES, THEN AWAY AT THE PALE SANDS. "'GO, THEN,' HE SAID QUIETLY. SHE FLUNG HER ARMS ROUND HIS NECK, DREW HIM AGAINST HER, KISSED HIM PASSIONATELY, AND WENT, SAYING, BUT YOU'LL COME IN, IN A MINUTE. SHE WAS PLODDING HEAVILY OVER THE SAND THAT WAS SOFT AS VELVET. HE ON THE SANDHILLS WATCHED THE GREAT PALE COAST ENVELOP HER. SHE GREW SMALLER, LOST PROPORTION, SEEMED ONLY LIKE A LARGE WHITE BIRD TOILING FORWARD not much more than a big white pebble on the beach, not much more than a clot of foam being blown and rolled over the sand, he said to himself. She seemed to move very slowly across the vast-sounding shore. As he watched her, he lost her. She was dazzled out of sight by the sunshine. Again he saw her, the merest white speck moving against the white, muttering sea-edge. "'Look how little she is,' he said to himself. She's lost, like a grain of sand in the beach, just a concentrated speck blown along, a tiny white foam-bubble, almost nothing among the morning. Why does she absorb me? The morning was altogether uninterrupted. She was gone in the water. Far and wide the beach, the sand-hills with their blue moraine, the shining water, glowed together in immense, unbroken solitude.' "'What is she, after all?' he said to himself. "'Here's the sea-coast morning, big and permanent and beautiful. "'There is she, fretting, always unsatisfied, and temporary as a bubble of foam. "'What does she mean to me, after all? "'She represents something, like a bubble of foam represents the sea. "'But what is she? "'It's not her I care for.' "'Then, startled by his own unconscious thoughts, "'that seemed to speak so distinctly that all the morning could hear, he undressed and ran quickly down the sands. She was watching for him. Her arm flashed up to him. She heaved on a wave, subsided, her shoulders in a pool of liquid silver. He jumped through the breakers, and in a moment her hand was on his shoulder. He was a poor swimmer, and could not stay long in the water. She played round him in triumph, sporting with her superiority, which he begrudged her. The sunshine stood deep and fine on the water— they laughed in the sea for a minute or two, then raced each other back to the sand-hills. When they were drying themselves, panting heavily, he watched her laughing, breathless face, her bright shoulders, her breasts that swayed and made him frightened as she rubbed them, and he thought again, but she is magnificent, and even bigger than the morning and the sea. Is she, is she? She, seeing his dark eyes fixed on her, broke off from her drying with a laugh. "'What are you looking at?' she said. "'You?' he answered, laughing. Her eyes met his, and in a moment he was kissing her white, goose-fleshed shoulder, and thinking, "'What is she? What is she?' She loved him in the morning. There was something detached, hard, and elemental about his kisses then, as if he were only conscious of his own will, not in the least of her and her wanting him later in the day he went out sketching you he said to her go with your mother to sutton i am so dull she stood and looked at him he knew she wanted to come with him but he preferred to be alone she made him feel imprisoned when she was there as if he could not get a free deep breath as if there was something on top of him she felt his desire to be free of her in the evening he came back to her they walked down the shore in the darkness, then sat for a while in the shelter of the sand-hills. It seems she said, as they stared over the darkness of the sea, where no light was to be seen, it seemed as if you only loved me at night, as if you didn't love me in the daytime. He ran the cold sand through his fingers, feeling guilty under the accusation. The night is free to you, he replied. In the daytime I want to be by myself. But why, she said, why, even now, when we're on this short holiday? "'I don't know. "'Love-making stifles me in the daytime. "'But it needn't be always love-making,' she said. "'It always is,' he answered, "'when you and I are together.' "'She sat, feeling very bitter. "'Do you ever want to marry me?' "'He asked curiously. "'Do you me?' she replied. "'Yes.' "'Yes. "'I should like us to have children,' "'he answered slowly. "'She sat with her head bent, "'fingering the sand. "'But you don't really want a divorce from Baxter, do you?' he said. It was some minutes before she replied. No, she said, very deliberately. I don't think I do. Why? I don't know. Do you feel as if you belonged to him? No, I don't think so. What then? I think he belongs to me, she replied. He was silent for some minutes, listening to the wind blowing over the hoarse, dark sea. And you never really intended to belong to me, he said, "'Yes, I do belong to you,' she answered. "'No,' he said, "'because you don't want to be divorced.' It was a knot they could not untie, so they left it, took what they could get, and what they could not attain they ignored. "'I consider you treated Baxter rottenly,' he said another time. He half expected Clara to answer him as his mother would. "'You consider your own affairs, and don't know so much about other people's.' But she took him seriously, almost to his own surprise. "'Why?' she said. "'I suppose you thought he was a lily of the valley, "'and so you put him in an appropriate pot "'and tended him according. "'You made up your mind he was a lily of the valley, "'and it was no good his being a cow parsnip. "'You wouldn't have it. "'I certainly never imagined him a lily of the valley. "'You imagined him something he wasn't. "'That's just what a woman is. "'She thinks she knows what's good for a man, "'and she's going to see he gets it, "'and no matter if he's starving, "'he may sit and whistle for what he needs "'while she's got him.' "'and he's giving him what's good for him.' "'And what are you doing?' she asked. "'I'm thinking what tune I shall whistle,' he laughed. "'And instead of boxing his ears, she considered him in earnest. "'You think I want to give you what's good for you?' she asked. "'I hope so. "'But love should give a sense of freedom, not of prison. "'Miriam made me feel tied up like a donkey to a stake. "'I must feed on her patch and nowhere else. "'It's sickening. "'And would you let a woman do as she likes?' Yes, I'll see that she likes to love me. If she doesn't, well, I don't hold her. If you were as wonderful as you say, replied Clara, I should be the marvel I am, he laughed. There was a silence in which they hated each other, though they laughed. Love's a dog in the manger, he said. And which of us is the dog? Oh, well, you, of course. End of Chapter 13 Part 1 Read by Tony Foster